Good Friday is such a surreal morning moment. Even as we're singing these songs and as we talk, even just talk about the concept that a person's death brings forgiveness for our sins. We live in such a physical realm. Like for us to even uh, fathom that concept of this supernatural world and how does that affect us? How does that, our saviors, how does Jesus' death affect us in a way that brings new life, a new way? That's a, that's a big stretch for a lot of people. And, and Good Friday usually is, is a time for me to make, to kind of embrace that stretch. Like, what am I about? What are we about? Do I believe this? Is Jesus Lord of my life? All those things come into play here. So that's what Good Friday is about, is this time of reflection, a type of understanding the, the cost and the weight of Jesus Christ on the cross. So as we get into it, let's pray. Lord, this is such an amazing day because it is a day where we engage with this, this truth that Thousands of years ago, your son gives his life on the cross. And that act, Lord, um, forgives us of our sins. He was the ransom. That's amazing. That's wild. And, and I didn't, there are new, I don't know, rays of light shed on that truth, that the beauty of that message, this message the most important message of all, Lord. So may we have that capacity in us, Lord, and that desire in us to hear your voice. So speak, Lord. Amen. So, Good Friday, we reflect. And we see our, play, our place in throughout this whole series, this entire series, The Villains of Easter, is that we can see ourselves in the story of each of these characters of the Bible story, of the cross. Uh, we can see our, ourselves... Even in, in uh, the first villain, who was uh, Satan, we can go, we can understand how we are sometimes actively at work against the kingdom. We can see ourselves as Judas. Uh, we do not stay true all the time. Or Peter, how sometimes we have good intentions, but we have different takes and, uh, or a different understanding of how this all plays out. We can be like religious leaders sometimes. We can be protective instead of engaged with the gospel message. Or, like uh, last week, we can be like the culture of Rome, a violent culture where the power to oppress is intoxicating. So here we are today, and for Good Friday, we thought it would be good for us to talk about uh, villain or villains of the crowd. And for, so as we go through some passages today, I hope it's our prayer that uh, you, we can all see ourselves in the crowd. We can see ourselves as... And that's really important on Good Friday, is that this isn't just this act thousands of years ago that we go, whew, thank goodness. We actually place ourselves in the story and then have an understanding of Jesus dying for us and Jesus dying for all. That the act of the cross happened and it's still happening. Like the forgiveness and the grace, the sanctification process is still happening and will continue to happen. 
just an incredible story. So maybe we grasp that today. So the crowd. So as we go through this, let's see ourselves in the crowd. Daily readings, I know you all did them. Proud of you. Good job. As you're going through your daily readings this week, you saw that there's three different types of crowds that the readings took us through. And each, different, each crowd was, had different makeup and had a different um, mood, theme, uh, tone to that crowd. So let's just go through that uh, to start off. So who are the crowds? Now, crowds weren't new. Crowds weren't new to Jesus. It is, dare I say, the corn and apple of Jerusalem. Like, people are coming. Like, you're going to come home that weekend. You're going to come uh, back to Jerusalem then. Or if you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go at that time. Now, when you read through, there's this movement towards Jerusalem that Jesus makes. And it's like a tour. He is stopping in different cities. And, like, some people have, are really big fans of, of certain bands. And they will follow with that, that band. Like, the Grateful Dead is notorious for people, like, they would follow them for an entire season. And they would go to all their concerts. Now, this is, uh, Jesus has that type of following where people are following him from town to town. Like, if he had a t-shirt, it would have, like, Galilee and the last town that would be on there before Jerusalem would be Jericho. Now, Jesus is making this movement right from Jericho, and he is walking to Jerusalem. So this movement of people with Jesus are heading to Jerusalem. Uh, so it's really outsiders coming into Jerusalem. But they meet another group of insiders who live in Jerusalem because it's Passover. So you have the merging, the mixing of two groups. It's like the two groups... It's like the country folk are coming to Jerusalem. Like we say in the country, like people from Winnipeg, I think I always have a chuckle like when we say we're going to the city, right? How many times do you say we're going to the city? What are you doing? Going to the city. You ever say that? Am I the only one? We all say that. We know which city. We know where we're going. Uh, so for us, that's how we talk. And that would be a, been a way for them as well. Jerusalem is the city. It is the place to go to. Uh, so what's the mood or the tone? If you read, uh, if we go to 12, uh, it says this, Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. So why was it, yeah, why was the crowd following him? This is a huge deal that sometimes we forget, and, and we find it in John 12. That was the reason so many were out to meet, went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. So Jesus has performed some miraculous acts. The most incredible one being Lazarus being raised from the dead, from the tomb, like dead for a while, not just you were dead and CPR'd back to life. Actually in the tomb for a bit, and he calls out to him, and Lazarus walks out. People knew that. They were in the crowd. They had witnessed it, and they were telling others. And Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and this group wanted to be in on it, wanted to be in on the, in the kind of the, you want to be right there. They did not want to miss out. So what's the mood? What's the mood as they're coming in? The mood as they're coming in is they're excited. Like this could be the guy. This could be the Messiah. He has power over death. That's a pretty good sign. And they are excited about what's next. On Palm Sunday, they're crying out, Hail to the King. 
here comes the king. It is quite the entrance. Now, Palm Sunday is a little, a little unique when it comes to crowds and Jesus. It's the way for this. He, it says he's leading the crowd. Jesus is in the front. It's not like the crowds are coming to him. He's actually leading the way. And the second part is he makes a deal of it. Like he says, go get that colt. Like go, I'm going to ride in on something. I'm not just going to walk in. There's some prophetic words that he is uh, fulfilling in this act. He's not just shrinking back and, and coming into town in the back gate. He is coming into town like down Stephen Street with the parade. And he's okay with it. He is all right with it. He is not escaping the crowd this time. He's in on it. So that's the first crowd. The second crowd, we find Now this is, these are more insiders. And we read about it in Matthew 27. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 27. Now we see him in the courtyard. He's been arrested. So Matthew 27, let's start at verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. And this year, there was a notorious prisoner, like most likely a murderer, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. So I know he's innocent in what he is going through at this time. So meanwhile, the leading priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So they're working the crowd. There's this crowd of insiders who are in the courtyard. And, and, and the Jewish leaders are going around saying, vote for Jesus, vote for Jesus, vote for Jesus. We will get Barabbas released. And the crowd goes along with it. Meanwhile, the leading priests and elders, uh, so the governor asked to release to you. The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. And Pilate responded, and what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared, crucify him. So what's the mood of this crowd? What is it? As I take a sip. What's the mood? It's anger. It's hostile. This is a hostile crew. This is a hostile crowd. They have been influenced by Jewish leaders, and they are saying, crucify him. So the third crowd that we're going to go into a little bit is the crowd of the cross. This is the most mixed crowd of them all. Within this crowd, you have Roman soldiers. Uh, you have spectators, people who are there just to watch the executions of the day. Can you imagine? You don't have to go very long or very far back into our history to see how a event. And you would go. You would go with your family. Instead of coming to church, or maybe this is before you go to church or after you go to church. It was part of the culture. Can you imagine? So sometimes I think, oh man, we've come a long way from that. And then you watch the news and you go, we have a ways to go. But in those times, that was kind of like a spectator sport. 
How sad is that? So you have those people. You also have the insiders. And you also have the outsiders, the ones who are here for the, the festival. And then you have family. And you have disciples. In Luke 23, 44, uh, or Luke 23, 47. Turn your Bibles to Luke 23. And again, we want to put ourselves in the crowd here. What would we do? What would we have done in that setting, in that culture? Luke 23, 47. If I can find it. It's not Luke 24. I know that. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshipped God and said, surely this man was innocent. Let's take that in. The Roman officer overseeing the execution worshipped God. Worshipped Yahweh. The one true God, not just a God. There was something about how this transpires for this Roman officer who he experiences he experiences God the creator he worships God and he said surely this man was innocent and when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened they went home in deep sorrow so if you were there if you were watching you got a sense of that as well you had a revelation this was not right. That word, uh, those words, uh, they went home in deep sorrow. They went home beating their breasts. They went home beating their chests. That this injustice had happened. So put yourself in the crowd and you've watched Jesus be crucified. And you go home beating your chest deep in sorrow. And then, but Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, remember that tour? Like this is city to city to city to city. They're following him. Where are they? They stood at... But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. Couldn't get too close. Stood at a distance watching this all unfold. This person, this Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah, and now he has been killed. He has died this horrible death on the cross. Just the heartbreak of it all. Can you imagine a friend of yours? Like, forget the Messiah. Can you imagine a child of yours, a friend of yours, someone you know so well, die this type of death? And there's nothing you can do? How helpless would you feel? How lost would you feel? How hopeless would you feel? I think I would feel all those things. All of them. What's the mood or the tone? Well, the mood or the tone is, uh, for all these groups of people, this very mixed crowd, the mood is somber. The mood is like, oh my goodness. The mood is what's next, a hopelessness. There's that vibe that just runs through 
the hills of Golgotha. It just is permeating the air. These are the three crowds. These are the moods and the tones of the three crowd of the three crowds and the movement through Easter week. The he comes in on Palm Sunday to great celebration, hail the king. And then he, the insiders are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Let the murderer go, and we'll crucify this person. And the third crowd is just, oh, just this, you just feel this. The air just leave the hill. So the questions that we've been walking through, I won't spend a lot of time on why were they trying to stop the kingdom. You know, because why? Why is the crowd trying to stop the kingdom? I don't know how active they were in trying to stop the kingdom, but uh, I think what you see here is a fear of Rome. Like, you're not storming the, per the Roman officers in charge of the execution. You're not trying to battle Rome head on. You're hoping the Messiah is going to bring something miraculous and then battle Rome head on, but you yourself are not doing that. And there's also a fear of religious leaders. The Jewish leaders able to whip them into a frenzy. You can't tell me that crowd was like, yeah, let's get Jesus. The Jewish leaders are manipulating behind the scenes, and they're allowing themselves to be manipulated. And maybe there's just this part of Jesus is not showing up like they thought. Like, why? Jesus said he's the Messiah? Well, if, they, if he can be killed, he's obviously not the Messiah. If he can be beaten and tortured and crucified on a cross, obviously that person's not the Messiah. The Messiah did not show up like we've been told the Messiah will show up. So, next. There are a lot of, maybe Jesus was just another person with a Messiah complex. There was lots of folks walking around saying they were, they were the Messiah during these times. Jesus was not unique in that Messiah uh, role, embracing that, but Jesus is the true Messiah. But he was not, it was not playing out like the people thought it should. So how did they attempt to stop the kingdom? Also a big question. How does the crowd try and stop the kingdom? How active were they? Well, they allowed themselves to be influenced in really surprising ways. It's like if you're in the courtyard and Pilate is going, who wants Barabbas released? It's like that. Who wants Jesus released? And it's like that. Whoever's loudest, Barabbas or Jesus? And they are screaming for the blood of Jesus crucify him. It says they get loud, louder, and then they roar. Crucify him. It's like Barabbas, uh, Jesus, woo! They are led. They are swayed. They're easily manipulated. Why? Fear? Wanting to protect what they had? Don't upset the apple cart? The status quo? for whatever reason. So what are the similarities in the crowd? Like I started uh, this morning, where are similarities with the crowd? I think sometimes we just allow ourselves to be led astray. We can be easily manipulated, especially in a crowd. If you ever go to a concert, uh, have you ever been to a concert for a group you didn't even really love? But you get swept up in it. You're like, I'm not even a fan, but you go with friends? It's just a good ticket. And I'm like, this is great. This is a great space to be in. You can be cheering. You can be swept up hill riots. And uh, I'm sure there's some people there who never thought it would, they would be a part of something like that. They were there for it for whatever reason. And next thing you know, they're breaking down barriers 
or they're in the 12th row and the people in front of them are breaking the barrier and they just get swept up in it. And they're sure there are some people in there who did not think they would be inside the Capitol building. But here they were. Sometimes we can be really surprised, I think, by where we end up, how easily we are led astray. I read a quote. If we are easily offended or easily angered, angered, we're easily manipulated. It's easy to get us to think about something. You just have to rile us up. Like, oh, oh maybe I should be upset. Maybe I should be mad. And next thing you know, woo, we're part of something. Well, what are we upset about? How are we engaging? How are we being a witness to the kingdom? Is, are always those underlying questions. Be upset about the right things and get upset in the right way. And that usually takes a community. That takes a great crowd, a healthy crowd, who has discernment and also challenges each other in the way we think and the way we act. That's church. That's the beauty of church. But we just have this tendency to drift or move away from God. And I think for very different reasons sometimes. And I think another reason, just like I talked about before, maybe it's just disappointment that Jesus is not showing up. The kingdom is not playing out like we thought it would. Especially when we're going through suffering and trials. It's when I think we can experience Jesus in the most deep and profound way, but it's also in the moments when we can be challenged in the greatest way as well. Like, boy, that hopelessness, like, man, I've been believing in you. I know you have the gift to heal, and yet here I am. I know you have the gift to heal relationships, but here we are, frozen, stuck, paying a price. Like, remember Lazarus again? That story of Lazarus is key to Easter. That's why Jesus kind of had to die. He had shown the power he had. And those people were in that first crowd because they had witnessed Lazarus rise from, be risen, raised from the dead. So there are miraculous signs. We are with you. What's next? You cannot tell me that all of us would have that same idea if we were in that time, in that context, in that culture, that we too would be looking for this miraculous sign of the Roman army being overthrown, of them being kicked out. Here we go, people. Watch what he's going to do. Here, I would have felt that. And I think we would too. And now the Messiah, the kingdom, is not playing out like he has revealed. He has the power to do. Where does that leave us? So when we are stuck, boy, that's our lived experience. That's what we know. We know this life. To think about each for us to wrap our heads around. And it's important for us to do that when it comes to Good Friday. Well, that's one similarity. The second similarity, and this was really hitting home for me today or this week, was... Uh, complicity. To be complicit is um, involved in an activity that uh, is immoral or illegal. You're involved in some way. We're involved in some way. When it comes to the cross, we have to understand that Jesus died for our sin. It's personal. Jesus died for you, for each and every one of us. And he also died for all, for all of us. We can never try and get away from that horrific and beautiful truth that we are a part of this. There's some complicity in this. Now, we could go on for a while, but um, I'm kind of getting up there in years, and uh, so sleep becomes, who needs it, right? You kind of get up in the middle of the night and wander around. 
So it's 4.30 in the morning this week. I get up and move around, and uh, there's a good documentary on TV, so I should watch that. It's 4.30. Got to wait for the sun to come up. And uh, it's uh, called The Accountant of Auschwitz. That sounds like good watching. And uh, must-see TV. And it was about uh, a man named Oscar Groening. Uh, it's a BBC interview that he does when he is like 84 years old. And he used to be an SS officer in Auschwitz. And he's called the accountant of Auschwitz because he was involved in bookkeeping. Part of his job was uh, really taking the valuables of the people who were getting off the train in Auschwitz as they were in the death camp, part of the camp. And before they went into the gas chambers, he took their valuables and he accounted for them, all the way down to shoes. He did that for a few years, and he saw some horrific things. And the way he got outed or found out was he did a BBC interview, and he was crying out against people who were saying the Holocaust never happened. And he was like, I was there. People need to know that this happened. He fit, like this movement, like people being easily led astray. We will believe, we can be led to believe some things that fly in the face of reality, and it can be shocking. And he wanted to speak against that. So he speaks against it and says, look, this happened. I was a witness to it. Well, he opens up a whole can of worms. And now he actually gets tried when he is 92 years old. He is put on trial. 2014, I believe, in Germany for being an accomplice to 300,000 murders. Being an accomplice, being complicit. Now, for some people, they're shocked, like, what are you doing? He's been, he was a young, young man when this was taking part, place, and now he's lived a good life. He's not a danger to society. And others are like, if we, if we let this person get away with it, then what are we saying to future generations that we will just forget and move on with our life? Well, that was way, way past history, and we won't worry about it now. Two very different camps. He's put on trial, and he is convicted of being complicit. Uh, and, he's served, and he's meant to serve four years. They appeal for two years, and he passes away before he serves any time. But that documentary moves through victims' uh, stories. It moves through his story and the culture of, of Germany uh, and other cultures around the world of how they are addressing, facing, being complicit, being an accomplice. And we are complicit as a crowd when we allow evil to happen, well, let me just take you to a quote. Um, I read a book, uh, How to Be Anti-Racist. And How to Be Anti-Racist, and what got my attention was, uh, I, I feel because this could describe me, uh, you can't be an, I can't be an anti-racist just by saying I'm not racist, by not being racist. That's not being anti-racist. Um, the author of that book is Ibram Kendi, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And the, it's, it's a quote that really sticks with me. The goal for those who believe in equal opportunity and justice should be to be anti-racist. And then he, in his book, kind of walks what that looks like. 
means to be an advocate for people who are oppressed, for people who suffer injustice. It means to be an advocate for, if we take it to, as a follower of Christ, it means to be an advocate for the kingdom of God. It means to be an advocate for those who do not know God. It means to be fighting against evil. Not just, it's not enough just not to do evil. It's when we see evil in us and around us, we act against it. It's not enough just to be, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that. It's to fight against it. And if we don't, we become complicit to the whole antichrist system. On Good Friday, we need to understand, do some soul-searching personally, where are we complicit? As a church, as a society, where are we complicit? Where are we accomplices by just, this is our role. This is, and that Oscar groaning, I thought of his story and went, boy, I don't, I don't know what I would do differently if I was from Germany, if I was raised in that culture. Boy, the choices we make, it's easy for me to say, oh, that's terrible, I'd never do it. I don't know when pressures are applied. None of us know until the pressure is applied to us or what we would do in different contexts. Yes, I would like to think I would never have been a part of it, but it's important for us to see streams of ourselves in all these areas to understand each and every person. And that's how uh, in Kendi's book, one of the main themes is that we better see ourselves in each story for a true understanding of people's depth of despair, for why people do what they do, for why we choose anything but Jesus. Understand people. Love them. So what does that fight look like? We're going to talk about that a little more on Sunday. Because there's a personal act call on us, and there's also a corporate call for us. So Jesus' response, what's Jesus' response to these people, to these crowds? He doesn't do. He doesn't rally the zealots. He has zealots with him. He could have, he could have flipped that place on its ear. And with the power that he has available to him, easily have won. That is not how the kingdom of God is ushered in. The kingdom of God is ushered in through sacrificial love and being vulnerable. That's the powerful move of a kingdom of God. It doesn't sit right with me sometimes. It doesn't seem like to be the... That's, that's not how you produce change. But that's what happens here. And Jesus dies for each and every one of those people in the crowd. No matter what their mood was, dies for them. And it's only through this nonviolent act and way that the kingdom of God is ushered in. What's our response? We're going to take communion.